Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and making things um, and or baking things that are both historical and not historical. Um, And we normally start off by talking about what we've been making and or baking recently. So what have you been up to? You're going to be disappointed in me. I haven't done any crafting since last time. <laughs> wow. That is, that is unusual for you. Well, just because I've had so much to learn with like having a job now <laughs> that I haven't really had the energy. Because like, I was doing the Godzilla cross-stitch while I was working mm-hmm. because I had a lot of video calls and it was something easy I could do with my hands. But now my projects are at some point actually hand sewing that skirt and knitting a gansey. And one of those is something I haven't done before, and the other one is complicated. Yeah. I can't do them during work. And then in the evening, I'm tired. Yeah. It's like I'm becoming less tired in the evenings. It's, it's going from very occasional stuff to full time is a big change, I think. Yeah, that's a big adjustment of routine. So I but but my soap stuff is here, including yeah. some cute little molds for embeds, which are also they're technically candy molds. So I might make oh. some little like chocolate bats or something at Halloween. Aww. That's cute. But hopefully, hopefully, soap making will will commence before we next record. Okay, I would like to see the Halloween soap. Although I am busy on Saturday, so like, I'll get it done. I'm determined. <laughs> I'm gonna get it done. How about you? you? Um, I oh yeah. So now that I finished um my big project uh, that I talked about last time, I have just been kind of reacquainting myself with uh all of my like knitting and things um yeah that's how many whips do you have at the moment don't i I don't know (laughs) a lot um it's it's how i like to work i my brain likes variety um so, although one thing I've been trying out at the moment is unspun yarn. Okay, I've heard mixed things about unspun yarn to yeah, work with. So had I, which is why I wanted to try it. Um, there's like various different um companies that make unspun yarn, which, if you haven't seen it before, is um. I guess what it says on the tin, it's been like drafted out into what kind of looks like a yarn thickness, but it's not spun. It's just a um, string of roving. Yeah, kind of. It's like very thin roving. <laughs> Which at first I was like, huh, how does that work? Um so yeah, being curious, I I thought I'd try it out. And I actually like it. Which I I wasn't sure that I would, um, but yeah, I actually like it. I uh, I don't think I would use it for any uh, sort of next to the skin garments because it is quite of a a rustic like feel. Um, but it's a surprisingly nice and squishy fabric, and it doesn't come apart once it's knitted. Uh, which I thought it might do. <laughs> That's but, good because um, that that would be my main concern. Would be like if if you pushed it a little bit, would the just the individual stitches come loose? Yeah, no, the fabric itself is fine, and I think that's because um, it's pretty much like every unspun yarn that I've seen has been made from a long wool. So once it's knitted into the stitch, it's not. Um, none of it is left exposed in a long enough length that it would come apart. 
By a um, long wool, I assume you mean like the individual fibres are long, like the staple length is long? Yes. Not just, it's a long piece of wool. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's what I mean. Though. It comes from a sheep that has a, a long um, strand length. So like, I think Plotulope is the most famous um, like unspun yarn, and that's from Icelandic sheep, uh, which have like a long overcoat. So um, yeah, there's that. Uh, so I've been making actually like a big cosy shawl with that, and it's it's really nice. And I'm excited to like snuggle up in that in the autumn. Um, and I now uh, did I talk about wool combs last time? You did, yeah. I did. Okay, right. Well, you'll have to <laughs> go back <laughs> and find that. Um, yeah. So for now, um, that's that's kind of what I've been working on, and it's actually fairly close-ish to being done so I'll, I'll put up a picture of that when it is um although it's still a little bit warm for uh winter projects at the moment um i did make some pesto oh how did that go it was good it had uh two kinds of basil in it just to be really fancy oh because <laughs> we just happened to grow two kinds this year um and I use pine nuts um, and actually parmesan for once because we don't normally have it and I normally can't be bothered to go out and get any but we happen to have some so I made like actual pesto as it's meant to be <laughs> uh, and it does taste good yeah I uh, I've been having for lunch basically every day um, like nice bread with like toasted with um pesto and fresh tomatoes just like on top oh, very jealous yeah L living the summer lifestyle <laughs> over here um so speaking of um do you want to talk speaking about our what? main topic speaking of the summer lifestyle um Yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I want to talk about bees. Yes. And please. also, um, our listener Federica wanted us to talk about bees and request it by email. Oh, so these are requested bees. They are requested bees. Excellent. Uh, I'm glad they were requested because this is such a good topic. Like, it's I, also I one know. that I feel like I should have done by now because I live in Manchester. Oh yeah, which famously is known by the bee symbol. Yeah, specifically the worker bee. Uh-huh. Because the Industrial Revolution happened. <laughs> but it wasn't bees. <laughs> it was not bees. But there are bees on... It's like a stylized bee that some people get very cross about on Twitter because it doesn't actually resemble a bee very much. It's more like a fly. Um, <laughs> but all of the bins in Manchester, the like on the street bins, they have this symbol on them. They do. I feel like they should put it on more than just the bins. <laughs> they should. But like, the, I think the main things people think about when they think Manchester bee specifically at the moment is if you're local, the bins, and I think probably a little bit wider is after the Manchester Arena bombing, a lot of people got Manchester bee tattoos. Yeah. Which was quite nice. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it did become quite a lot more well-known then. And that is specifically when people on Twitter started complaining about the symbol, which not the time. Ah. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you're going to critique the accuracy of a city symbol, don't do it when it's being used as a symbol of solidarity with a tragedy. Yeah, that is that is somewhat mistimed. Um, but yes, bees and, and honey. Apiculture, as it is called. That is a good word. Um, so the earliest evidence we have of honey gathering 
is a cave painting in uh, Cueva de la Araña near Valencia, Ooh. which is 15,000 years old. Wow. Um, I think uranium dated, but I'm not positive on that. Which depicts a person, well, is thought to depict because cave paintings rather abstract mm-hmm. um but it's thought to depict a person probably a woman climbing up to gather honey from a hive with bees around her that kind of makes sense because like it's it's an easily well maybe not easily but like it's a gatherable from the wild food oh wow that's i'm i'm looking at this um drawing of the cave painting now and that yeah that's pretty clearly a a bee um hive isn't it not a beehive am um... no hive is correct okay um and so some some cultures do still gather wild honey in this way of basically climbing up a tree with a rope ladder and a woven basket and just taking the honey from the wild hive. Okay. Um, including uh, Bedouin people in Syria and the Gurung people of Nepal. Wow. That that seems quite brave. It does, but I mean, have you tried honey? <laughs> worth it. Yeah, worth it. Um, it also shows up in... Uh, religious practices in a lot of groups, especially groups that do gather it wild. Mm-hmm. And we have found um, potsherds from 7000 BC with traces of uh, beeswax on them. So we think that um, Neolithic farmers in the Middle East probably, if not kept in the modern sense at the very least had areas of bees that they then utilized okay that's so cool it just blows me away that there's traces of the actual usage left on the thing like i just this this is why i love pots <laughs> in archaeology specifically yeah, there's a um, translation of a Babylonian stele, which talks about um, bees being brought down to the land of Sohum from the mountains and made to settle in orchards where people could collect, collect the honey and wax. Oh, wow. So sort of not exactly beekeeping but be like rehoming the bees to where you can get the honey i mean rehoming the bees to where you can get the honey is not that far off modern beekeeping because bear in mind bees aren't domesticated yeah no absolutely but it's just like they're not they're not being put in a a, like a man-made home i guess at this point uh, it's it's unclear. Okay. But we have evidence from Bronze Age Israel and Egypt, uh, specifically 5th Dynasty Egypt, of artificial beehives. Oh, wow. And there's um, depictions in a... Fifth Dynasty Egyptian temple of people blowing smoke into beehives. Oh, so that method is extremely old. It really is. Wow. Um, So you basically use the smoke to knock the bees out temporarily Mm -hmm. so that you can go in and take the honey. It makes sense that people would fairly early on develop some kind of methods to like not get stung by all of the bees. Mm. Um, and ancient Egypt and its penchant for bureaucracy um, 
we have honey being collected by regional administrators in clay vessels marked with the quality and colour of the honey. Um. But I mean, honey was being used in this time as an antiseptic. Mm-hmm. So you would want to know where the, what honey is really good quality. Yeah. And honey it's... as an antiseptic does work. Yeah, I've heard that it has that property. Well, yeah. So this one time Nick poured boiling water all over their hand trying to drain some pasta. Oh. Um, and the hospital gave them a tube of medicinal honey to put on it. Oh, right. So there's medicinal grade honey. There is medicinal grade honey. Wow. You can get this. Is it tastier? Did did you lick it? I did not lick it. (laughs) I was very tempted, but I wasn't sure if there would be like something else in it. Okay. Maybe not the time. But yeah, honey pops up in every ancient civilization. We have um, Han Dynasty. We have records of people producing honey and wax specifically for the emperor. And um, the Maya, Maya, I never know how to pronounce it, um, had apiaries with um, a species of stingless honeybee. Oh, that's neat. They, they would make hives out of hollowed out logs, which would generally very elaborately decorated on the outside. With stone discs to as basically a lid for them, uh-huh. and there have been ones found from um, three hundred BC to three hundred uh, AD. Oh wow! That Which sounds makes... like it would be a sight to see. Yeah, um, but that makes them some of the potentially some of the oldest beekeeping artifacts in the world, which is quite cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so if we go over to ancient Greece, we have Virgil and his Georgics, which was a series of very long poems about agriculture. Sounds thrilling. Um... (laughs) In one, in one verse, he discusses warfare between hives of bees. Oh, the leaders themselves, in the middle of their ranks, conspicuous by their wings, have great hearts in tiny breasts, determined not to give way until the victor's might has forced these here or those there to turn their backs in flight. <laughs> Apparently, if if your beehives are fighting in this, like very organized and suspiciously like greek warfare at the time manner um you just throw some dust on them and then they'll calm down and you can get both of the generals and kill the weaker one i like the idea that bees have a developed military ranking system but you you can tell the difference because the stronger one will shine with rough blotches of gold. Oh. Whereas the other one is shaggy from sloth and ingloriously drags a swollen belly. That's kind of (laughs) harsh. It really is. (laughs) Oh, is that, like, a thing? Has bee warfare been, um, like witnessed by anyone else um beehives will sometimes try to steal from the hives or nests of other bees mm-hmm. so like it it is a thing but they don't have generals <laughs> okay um they they will sometimes as well have conflicts over I mean similar things to humans, they'll have conflicts over territory. Mm-hmm. Um apparently there's some species which do kind of a cuckoo thing where they will lay their their own 
eggs or even insert their own queen into a hive and then kill the queen and take over the hive. Oh. That's kind of gripping. Like, I, I would watch a thriller about that. The movie too. <laughs> um, but yeah, throwing dust at the bees is not helpful. Ah. That's just a good way to annoy the bees. Yeah. That doesn't sound good. Um, but yes, in staying in ancient Greece, we also have Homer's Hymn to Hermes, which talks about um, bees with the power of divination. Ooh. Like uh, bee women. And bee bees were associated with Apollo. And the um, Oracle of Delphi was actually sometimes referred to as a bee. Oh. And there's a possibility of honey being used in religious ceremonies in uh, Crete. Okay. There's been a few different interpretations, but the honey as a religious offering one makes the most sense from what I've read. Mm-hmm. So I think my next question is, have you seen the medieval beekeeper costumes, which are going to be my clue for this episode? No, I don't think so. So I want you to imagine kind of a fencing outfit. Uh-huh. Um, except... The bottom half is more of a tunic than trousers. Okay. And then on the front of the face, there is still kind of a mesh, but it's more wicker. Oh, like a wicker helmet. Just on oh, the face. Wow. That is... <laughs> that is very surreal. <laughs> It is, it is disconcerting. Why am I getting Among Us vibes? I can see that. <laughs> so medieval Europe, we also have the use of hollow logs as beehives, but also woven ones, which were called uh, skeps in okay. um, Germany, Poland, that kind of area. Okay, yeah, I think those are the the sort of oldest ones that I've seen in. Um like depictions and manuscripts and things mm. um but are those the ones where you um you have to destroy the hive essentially in order to collect the honey yeah which okay. is probably why they invented these weird looking beekeeping outfits <laughs> they um, look like they would protect you from the bees yeah Uh, we also have bee forests. Bee forests? Which is basically, in, as in uh, Mesopotamia, encouraging the bees to take up residence somewhere convenient for you to get to, essentially. Including actually carving out parts of living trees and encouraging oh. the bees to go and nest in there. Wow. Uh, unsurprisingly, in Europe, these were mostly owned by the church. Uh-huh. They did own a lot of land. Yeah, so then you start getting people studying bees, because people start getting really into studying things. Mm-hmm. And it is discovered in the 1800s that bees are partly parthenogenic. What does that mean? Uh, they can reproduce without um, fertilization. And what else? Uh, basically, so the queen lays the eggs. Okay. The fertilized eggs become worker bees. Mm-hmm. The unfertilized eggs become drones. Oh. 
I see. Wow. Did not know that. Uh, which was discovered by Johan uh, Zierzon, a Polish apiarist, who also invented the removable frame beehive, kind of the modern, the modern beehive, mm-hmm. which made it a lot easier to get honey without killing any bees. Oh yeah, presumably saves you a lot of work in terms of, like enticing more bees into your new hives later on definitely yeah it also makes it easier to inspect your bees Mm -hmm. make sure that the hive is healthy uh he also discovered royal jelly Ah. as in the thing that they feed that bees feed to one of their own to make a new queen yeah that's supposed to be good for you is that I vaguely remember shampoo with royal jelly in it being a thing for a little bit. Okay. And I think it it shows up as a dietary supplement as well, but it's... Mm -hmm. I mean, the FDA has apparently sued companies for claiming that it has health benefits. Okay. So I feel like that probably means it's not actually any better for you than honey. yeah, maybe not. (laughs) Honey sounds easier to obtain anyway. Hmm. Um, yeah, his his gravestone actually calls him the revered old master of beekeeping, which I like. That is brilliant. What a nice way to be remembered. Hmm. It's actually very um, coincidental for my local larder. Oh. But we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, further east, especially places like uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, we have... Um, Beekeepers who are seasonally migratory. Itinerant beekeepers. Itinerant beekeepers who travel with up to 400 hives as the the wildflowers bloom in different areas. Wow. That is so cool. Which I love. Yeah. I feel like an itinerant beekeeper would be such a good protagonist in a story. You're giving me ideas. <laughs> Be a good D and D character as well, actually, like a swamp. Oh keeper. yeah, <laughs> that's brilliant. Um, but yeah, that that specific model of beehive is still the most mod- most commonly used today. Um, mm-hmm. there was the flow hive invented in 2015, which supposedly like you just basically turn on a tap and the honey comes out. But it wasn't um, great, and obviously it doesn't have the advantage of removable frame stuff where you can have a look and inspect. Yeah, inspect which in, in these current times of bee diseases is useful. Mm. Although apparently it has increased um, the amount of amateur beekeeping in Australia because it's it's easier to use. Mm-hmm. I should mention it was invented in Australia. That's why Australia specifically. Ah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I think the the ones um, that my dad uses are the ones with the the frames. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to work well. Um, I'll probably do a separate episode on actually honey, but obviously there's a lot to say just about bees. Yeah. So bees are key pollinators, naturally. Mm-hmm. We we all know this. Most of what we eat has bees involved at some point. I know they are still used heavily in in commercial farming. Yeah. Um, although there are some places that pollinate by hand and claim to be bee free because veganism doesn't quite understand that bees are basically unionized mm-hmm. um if bees do not like their working conditions they will leave bees have been known to essentially stage walkouts <laughs> good for them um yeah i remember my mum talking about um when she first started working uh 
in the um, my my grandparents ran like an orchard um and mm-hmm. they grew peaches indoors in like the the glass houses and one of her first jobs would be to take like cotton buds and like fluffy things and hand pollinate the peaches um because they i don't know i guess they couldn't get bees in i i imagine getting bees out of a greenhouse is a difficult task a couple of myths about honey production actually while we're on unionized bees um honey is not bee vomit they Mm. fill the cells of the hive with nectar and then fan fan it with their wings which makes the water evaporate um one thing i saw going around was that they put bees in the centrifuge to get the honey out like they put the high the removable frames in the centrifuge but the bees honey are not harmed in the production of honey the honey come out of the bee what <laughs> people love to just lie about how honey is made apparently wow <laughs> bees are not harmed by the production of honey they make more honey than they could ever use, and humans take some, mm-hmm. and everyone in this arrangement, honey is fine. Um, yeah, can confirm, have seen honey harvested with my own eyes, the, the bees are not harmed, uh, it's fine. Although there was that one time um, that we... Because okay. uh, I mean... <laughs> there was that one time, <laughs> go on. There was that one time that I punched a bee in the face. Um, no, <laughs> it does make it sound like I. I mean, my dad punched the bee. Oh. <laughs> That's well, I. Well, it was in the living room, and I used to be really scared of bees. I still am kind of scared of bees, but I used to be even more scared of bees. And I was freaking out, and he just stood up and punched it, and it died. Oh my god. <laughs> So that's my bee punching story. What happened? Okay. What was the incident? Um. Yeah. Well, I might have told you this story, but I'm going to repeat it briefly for the benefit of um people um listening because uh bees still get you know they get a little bit agitated um when you're removing things from their hive as you might if someone came into your house and you know um moved around. Um, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> you're going to have to re-record that bit. <laughs> Overlay it with a B sound. Yeah. <laughs> um. And uh, yeah, so we were taking a bit longer than usual. I was helping with the harvesting, and so we thought, well, we better um take this uh this box of frames away um to get all the frames out because otherwise the bees are going to get a bit, bit too agitated, and we don't want to be around them. Um, so <laughs> we took the box, um, off the top of the hive and there was a, a box with empty frames underneath, which the bees were meant to go down into, but, um, there were still some bees in the box that we had. So we wrapped up the box, um, because we had to put it in the car to take it back home and we didn't want the bees to get out. Uh, so we wrapped up the box and put it in the boot of the car uh, but we kept the bee su- the beekeeping suits on because just in case, you know, you don't want to be yeah. trapped in a car with an unknown amount of bees. That um, is a nightmare I've genuinely had. <laughs> well, congratulations, you might have it again. Um, <laughs> anyway, the number plates on the car have been stolen earlier that day, so that led to us happily driving along in a plateless car wearing full beekeeping suits with a trunk full of bees. Um, which, hey. it is a miracle that we were not pulled over. <laughs> but, it, it yeah, it was fine in the end. We put the box in the garden, the bees dispersed, and, and then we got honey. And we also got new number plates. Um, Okay, I thought I thought this was a story about harm coming to bees. No, the bees were fine. Harm was very likely to come to us, though. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad it didn't. Let me just be clear. Yeah, I can you imagine? Um, I'd like to see what's in your trunk, sir. No, officer, you really don't want to do that. 
Sorry, I need a moment. Anyway, that's my <laughs> that's my B story. It's a good B story. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I've lost my place now. Sorry. Uh, we were talking about B myths. Yes. Um, one thing that I think is really cute is the traditional um, English practice of telling the bees mm. when... You probably know about this. I do. Uh, when, something, when something important happens, uh, especially a birth, a marriage, or a death, you have to go and tell the bees. You better make sure they know. Um, because, especially with deaths, because apparently if you don't tell the bees that someone has died, and then they realise that they weren't in mourning when they should be, they will stop producing honey. Oh! Presumably out of shame? So, bees are very traditional. They are. There's a song from Nottinghamshire, um, which... That is a part of telling the bees, um, oh. gener generally from the uh, wife or daughter of the deceased. The master's dead, but don't you go. Your mistress will be a good mistress to you. Aww. Um, there's also a German version, actually, which is, Little bee, our lord is dead. Leave me not in my distress. That's kind of lovely. And this tradition did make it to the US. There's... Um, a oral history from uh, Carolina, where stating that what you do is you go around each hive and you knock on it, presumably to get the bees' attention, and then tell them that whoever has died has died. Okay. Yeah, there's a really lovely song um, that was written, a contemporary song that was written by a local to me band. Uh, about telling the bees, which I'll put up a link to it on the Twitter. I think there's an online version. Um, yeah, very very whimsical practice. Um, so with the loss of bees, um, due to various things, including uh, neonicotinoids, mm -hmm. which have been banned in some places, not in others, and largely kind of... because of money. Mm -hmm. And they're being unbanned in some places because of money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, things like the bee mite, um, which causes commonly collapse disorder. There is a lack of bees. Oh, also habitat destruction. Uh, just yes. a general less biodiversity, especially in agricultural areas, actually. Oh, yeah, I've heard that about um, sort of the loss of meadowland. And the many different varieties that are that support pollinators. Yeah, so like bees are becoming very important, and there is an increase in urban beekeeping. Like there's mm -hmm. some buildings that you'll come across that actually have beehives on the roof, including there's a couple in Manchester, which oh, nice. is appropriate. Um, but there's a big move to have more biodiversity in places like hedgerows which is you know you should have you should have that anyway because all of the plants are important the whole ecosystem generally um, speaking more biodiversity equals good yeah but that also saves farmers money because there's a, there's some farmers who have increased biodiversity in their hedgerows who no longer have to bring in bees to pollinate. Ah. Um, which one one news article I found about this happening in Vancouver um delightfully refers to these um sort of bees that are just kind of around as non-union bees. Because the a lot of them are solitary bumblebees. Ah. <laughs> and also so the money is changing hands for their services. And I just I just find that phrase delightful. 
The non-union bees. <laughs> the bee scabs. <laughs> oh. But, like, the bees are not on strike. The bees are having much worse problems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that that is my brief history of bees. And now you can go and tell it to the bees. Oh, yeah, maybe I will. Here is the history of your people. Are you going to go out and play this episode for your bees? I might do. (laughs) (laughs) I think they'd be interested. You've got to know your history. Yeah, you got to know where you come from. Maybe they will sing you the song of their people. Bzz. Bzz. (laughs) It's a good song. Not much variation, but it doesn't get old. You can waggle dance to it. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was fantastic. RPG ideas should be good, right? But what this podcast supposes is, maybe they don't have to be. The Probably Bad podcast brings you ideas like dire humans fight your GM in real life. And what if there is an eye laser man? Listen to the Probably Bad podcast, available everywhere podcasts exist, and some places where they don't. So what is our local ladder this week? Um, so I thought I would tie in with the bee theme by picking something involving honey. Um, and it, yeah, it's very coincidental that our friend Johan, the revered beekeeper, uh, was involved because uh, it's actually a regional specialty from Poland that I'm going to talk about. Lovely. Yeah. Um, so this is, uh, apologies if there was a noise there, there was a gust of wind and one of the doors in my room fell off, but don't worry, it does all the time. Fell off? Uh, yeah, it's only small. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine, I'll put it back in later. Um, yeah, anyway, so this is a honey cake from Poland. And... Yes, um, I, all forms of honey cake are great. Uh, I usually make one at Christmas because um, not that many people like Christmas fruit cake. But honey cake does feel quite festive, I think. Um, and there I is it in the summer. Mm. Actually, yeah, I can see that with like citrus flavors. It would be quite summery. Oh, I did do a honey cake where I basically made a Victoria sponge but replaced all of the sugar with honey and then I had a lemon icing on top. Oh, that sounds nice. Highly recommend. Mm. Yeah, so the one that I'm going to talk about, there is a um, like sort of winter spiced version. Um, but this one is a bit different. Um, so it's called Miodownik. And that comes from the Polish word for honey. So it basically means honey cake. And it is a layered honey cake that can have various fillings and toppings. Um, And I will send you a picture. Uh, Let's use that one. I'll pop a picture of this up on the Twitter as well. So most of dense. Yeah. <laughs> um, most of the versions I've seen of this have at least three layers. Um, so and it's it's made by baking like at least three separate cakes and then layering them together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the recipe um uses honey in the cake mixture. And honey in a cake gives it a sort of like dense and moist texture that is, it's it's just really nice, I think. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's quite a, it's quite a distinctive sort of texture and flavour, I think. Um, so that's the cake part. And then there's slightly different versions of this cake. 
So it can have plum jam in it, which the the one that I sent you has like plum jam and a custard as the filling in between the layers, and then has like a walnut topping. There's also a version that has semolina in between the layers. And then I'm less into that, but that might just be because of school dinners. I've never actually tried semolina. Is it like semolina and tapioca? It's 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 Mm. bad school dinner pudding. (laughs) Yeah, so that is sometimes used as a filling. Um, I I think that's quite a popular one. And then uh, there's also like a a syrup that can go on top. Um, which is sort of honey that's been sort of heated up and then poured over, um, or it can have chocolate on top. So there's quite a few different possibilities for this. Um, but most of the recipes I've seen, I've seen, uh, concur that it's better once you leave it a few days, so that the flavors of the fillings kind of mingle into the the honey cake base. Um, and apparently it's best after a week. So it's it's a cake that, you know, matures. Which I quite like. That is good. I haven't I haven't come across a lot of cakes that do that. But the no. ones that do are all great. <laughs> yeah, I think generally better fresh, but I think I guess something about the addition of honey, I mean honey is a preservative, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I think it would it wouldn't go dry because of the honey, especially if you do the syrup version. Yeah. So I can see that being good. I'd like to give this a go, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, like various versions of it look pretty delicious. Um, so. There's there's a few stories about the development of Myodovnik, and uh, one of them is that Poland being famous for its gingerbreads, um, which have been made there since the medieval period, um, it sort of developed from those because Polish gingerbreads use honey as well. Um, to try Polish gingerbread is what I'm hearing. Yeah, um, yeah, I I would love to. Uh, actually, we could do an episode on gingerbread. Oh, we should. Autumn I think is coming. There's enough there. Oh, what? Sorry. Autumn is coming. It is. Yeah. This episode goes up right towards the end of August. In fact, so autumn is is basically uh-huh. here by the time that this goes up. <laughs> Brilliant. Um. Uh, so yeah, so that's um, that's one sort of lineage of the honey cake. Um, but it also is known under a different name in Polish Jewish communities. Um, so it could also have originated there and then become popular all over the country. Um, so I wasn't able to find a pronunciation guide <laughs> for this name, um, but. The Polish Jewish name for the cake is Chonet Lezkesz, something like that. It's a cake with many names because the variations with semolina also have different names. But they all involve honey and deliciousness. I mean, can you really have too many honey cakes? No, I don't think you can. Um, so yeah, that that is my regional contribution to the honey theme, and I guess it's entirely possible that that Johan ate this cake during his lifetime. I really like that. Yeah, and I'll link to a recipe in the Twitter in case anyone wants to try that out because I certainly would like to. So if you would like to 
suggest an episode, you can email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again to uh, Frederica for, for doing that. This was a fun one to research. Um, there are, we do have a few more requests um, on the list that we will be looking at in the future. Um, but in the meantime, you can find us at Bread and Thread on Twitter, where you will find teasers for upcoming episodes. Uh, the pictures of things that we talk about in the episodes will also be posted there when the episode comes out. And uh, we also reblog things, reblog, retweet. <laughs> I don't use Twitter much. Things about um, history as well. The place where we do reblog things is Tumblr, which is also at Bread and Thread. <laughs> Uh, where you can find the same stuff as on the Twitter, plus occasional ramblings. We're also on YouTube, Bread and Thread again, where we have YouTube versions of our audio podcast, because um, that's easier to access for some people. And if you want, um, if you want to support us, help us buy craft supplies and web hosting and all those lovely things then you can go to patreon.com slash bread and thread and get access to a discord server where we just have a lovely chat it's a very sort of chill knitting circle type atmosphere um not that you have to be a crafter to join the to join the patron yeah there's no audition <laughs> um and you can also, at the £5 a month level, get access to monthly recipes. Trying to remember what the last one was. We will make an episode. Yes, if you, if you go for the £10 a month level, we will make the bonus episode on anything you want, be it domestic history related or otherwise. Until next time, thank you for listening.